Welcome to CII's podcast, The Voice of Corporate Governance. While this podcast is open to the public, the majority of our work is only accessible to current CII member organizations. If you would like information on becoming a member of CII, please visit our website at cii.org or contact our Director of Membership, Melissa Fader, with her email, melissa at cii.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor George S. Georgiev of the Emory University School of Law. Professor Georgiev is the author of an article recently published in the NYU Journal of Law and Business entitled The Breakdown of the Public-Private Divide in Securities Law, Causes, consequences, and reforms. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Professor, in your article, you describe the historic public-private divide in the capital-raising process in the U.S., and you argue that that divide has broken down over time as a result of a deregulatory cascade. So can you first explain to our listeners what is the public-private divide? That's a great question. So the public-private divide really is a conceptual device uh, that we have for making sense of securities regulation. Securities regulation in the United States is a very complex uh, area, and the public-private divide is just one way to conceptualize it. So each of the securities laws, the 33 Act, the 34 Act, the Investment Company Act, draws lines between entities and activities that are subject to federal regulation and oversight and those that are not. So we have categories such as public company versus private company, public offering versus non-public offering. We have registered investment companies, uh, most mutual funds versus private funds. And so taken together, these lines between uh, regulated and unregulated construct this. And with the public-private divide, we have a regulated realm on one side and then a lightly regulated or unregulated realm. And so in the regulated realm, we have public companies meaning companies that comply with a very extensive regime of federal public company regulation, public companies raising public capital on highly liquid public markets from mainstream or public investors. On the other side, we had a small group of private companies raising private capital from a group of narrowly qualified investors. And so for a long time, this was the structure of securities law. But as a result of changes in uh, law, regulation, and also certain evolutionary changes in the capital markets, the divide no longer makes sense. The lines between the regulated and the unregulated realms have been uh, completely blurred. Professor, what were the key elements of the so-called deregulatory cascade that you believe fundamentally changed the capital raising process in the U.S.? That's a great question, Jeff. And maybe we can look at two uh, parts of it. So first, let's look at some market data, and then let's talk about changes in law. And the market data is something that observers in this space are well aware of, but I think it's still helpful to refresh it for our listeners. And so the most 
prominent development, I would argue, is the rise of unicorns. So these are these uh, uh, once rare companies, private companies with an implied market valuation of at least $1 billion. And they were co- called unicorns when the term was coined in 2013, because they were supposed to be very, very rare. So we only had uh, approximately 43 unicorns in the United States in 2013. And then by the end of 2020, we had 251. And then by the end of 2021, that number nearly doubled to 488. The aggregate implied valuation of US unicorns was $1.67 trillion at the end of 2021. Uh, and that was almost a threefold increase over the course of 2021 alone. So we've really had this rapid growth in private markets and unicorns uh, for the past, let's say, uh, eight years. Uh, But over the past year, that's really uh, become uh, exponential. And of course, we've also had this significant variation in the number of initial public offerings, IPOs in the United States, uh, from um, over um, uh, 500 IPOs per year for much of the 1990s. Uh, Then uh, during the uh, 2000s, the early 2000s, we actually had some years where we had fewer than 100 IPOs, which, as you know, caused a lot of... uh, Uh, commentators to question the uh, viability and the health of U.S. capital markets. Uh, Then, of course, we had over 400 IPOs in 2020 and then over 1,000 IPOs in 2021. Um, A significant number of those was PACs. But the the key point is that uh, public capital capital raising has also uh, recovered considerably. So we have a growth in unicorns and private capital. And then we also have this trend uh, towards uh, more IPOs, which which is, in some sense, uh, they they go um, uh, in opposite directions. There are some other developments as well. So at the start of this century, the number of U.S. public companies exceeded the number of U.S. private equity-owned companies by considerable margins. And today, uh, these positions are completely reversed. So we have actually more private equity-owned companies uh, than public companies in the U.S. Uh, Assets under management for the buyout industry, which is a key source of private capital, have grown steadily and actually more than tenfold between uh, 1990 uh, and uh, 2019, which is the last year for which we uh, have good data. And then capital raising, as you know, in the very opaque private markets uh, is very difficult to track. The data is incomplete. Uh, But both SEC data and Independent data shows that during the 2010s, so during the past decade, more capital was raised in private markets than in public markets. And the upshot is that unicorns, early stage and even late stage private companies, rely on the private markets for the growth intensive stages of their life cycle. And uh, by the time they go public, they're no longer in growth mode, which is uh, problematic for various reasons. So this is the market data that we have, which just shows this upheaval in the structure of capital raising. What was the deregulatory cascade? Well, there are actually two stories here, one story about regulation and another story about deregulation. And the regulatory story uh, is familiar uh, to uh, most of us. It's about uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, the imposition of fairly significant corporate governance mandates at the federal level in terms of uh, board structure and composition, board committees, internal controls and procedures, uh, say on pay, executive compensation, certain disclosure requirements, and so on. It's something that uh, we've been talking about really since uh, 2002, since uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was uh, passed. And then there is a 
different story, a story about deregulation and fundamentally this led to the breakdown of the public-private divide. And the deregulation story is the story of the Jobs Act, which created new exemptions, regulation light regimes, uh, um, as well as uh, making possible really the rise of unicorns. This was followed by the so-called FAST Act in 2015, and then the harmonization of various uh, private capital raising exemptions uh, during the tenure of uh, Chairman Clayton at the SEC, uh, which culminated with um, uh, rulemaking that was finalized in uh, November uh, 2020, just days actually before the presidential election. So the interesting thing is that some of these reforms exacerbated the very problems that they set out to address, which in turn became the rationale for yet more deregulation. Um, and in terms of what these reforms were, uh, one reason why they haven't gotten as much attention, uh, at least to those who don't follow capital markets uh, too closely, is that they were piecemeal, very technical, um, and a little bit difficult to grasp, or at least to assess what their effect will be. Uh, but ultimately, and I discussed this at great length in the paper, we have several prominent developments, which we can summarize thematically, I guess. Uh, so one of them is really enabling the rise of unicorns. Uh, and this is changing the shareholding thresholds under uh, Section 12G from 500 holders of record to uh, 2,000 holders of record. That becomes the trigger for uh, public company uh, regulation. Uh, then also the exemption, and this is something that not many uh, people have focused on, the exemption of employee investors from the count. Uh, and so basically you can have employees, you can give, uh, uh, you can have employees as investors and they're not counted for purposes of that thousand uh, shareholder record threshold. Then emphasizing capital raising on the private markets over the public markets. And this is where uh, all the uh, exemptions and the expansion of exemptions uh, comes in, uh, various thresholds for exemptions, making it just much easier to raise capital on the private uh, markets. Uh, then allowing public capital from mutual funds, from individual retail investors uh, to go into private companies or to go into private funds, which again, just expands the private side of the public-private divide and really uh, blurs the lines because the entire idea is that public capital on the public markets goes into public companies. And then uh, we have the private markets, which are much smaller, uh, much fewer private companies. And then if those private companies want to grow, they really have to do an IPO. This was the structure of securities law really for much of the 20th century uh, up up until, uh, I would argue, uh, just the past 10, 15 years. Professor, your article also talks about a public company regulatory paradox. What do you mean by that term? So the public company regulatory paradox really illustrates the somewhat incoherent nature of the regime as it exists today. So it's possible today to have two firms that are identical in virtually every respect. So business model, size and scope of operations, enterprise value, access to capital, number of shareholders, number of employees, and so on. And for those two firms to actually have widely different regulatory obligations. If firm A is a public company and firm B is a private company, firm A would need to comply with 
the full complement of public company regulations. So they'll have to provide extensive disclosure about their results of operation, financial condition, trends and risks affecting business executive compensation, corporate governance arrangements, and various other topics. Uh, they'll have to establish and maintain internal controls and procedures over financial reporting. The board of directors would have to have specially designated committees with strict qualification requirements uh, for those serving on them and so on and so on. By contrast, the firm that is a private company would have to do none of that, right? They don't have to provide disclosure. Uh, they only have to comply with uh, corporate governance requirements on state law, which are minimal and uh, certainly nothing in comparison to the federal corporate governance regime. And the key to this paradox is twofold. So public company regulation, the regulation of business enterprises at the federal level in the United States generally kicks in only if a firm elects to finance itself on the public markets, the public capital markets instead of the private markets. And then second, private markets are now just as abundant as private markets, which actually renders public company status virtually irrelevant from an access to capital point of view. And here, of course, I want to point out that there may be other reasons to go public other than access to capital. But access to capital traditionally has been the primary reason. And what we've seen, including as illustrated by some of the trends I discussed, is that actually it's just as easy to raise capital on the private markets as it is on the public markets. That's why companies are staying private much longer. And that in a sense, public capital and private capital have become fungible. And tethering regulation to public or private company status uh, increasingly doesn't actually make as much sense. Professor, in your article, you argue that the breakdown of the public-private divide in the U.S. capital raising process has produced a number of negative consequences. You describe one of those negative consequences as a reduction in the regulatory capacity of our federal securities laws, and you cite climate change regulation as a case in point. Can you explain that? And so obviously, investor protection is still the primary rationale for federal securities regulation. But increasingly, and this is evident uh, in uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and the Dodd-Frank Act and kind of the general tenor of what Congress has been doing, uh, we have other rationales as well, accountability, transparency, efficiency, and so on, basically economic regulation at the federal level. And the idea is that if companies can choose between, freely choose between public and private company status, then they're really choosing whether or not to be regulated, right? If we have a lot of regulation that falls only on the public company side, and it's as easy to be private as it is to be public, uh, then why would companies opt into uh, this regulatory regime if they can avoid it? Uh, and to illustrate this, uh, I can go to the example of uh, climate change, which, uh, which you brought up. So we actually uh, have a number of large oil and gas companies that have made uh, commitments about reducing emissions and uh, cleaning up their uh, assets and so on and so forth. And we've seen in the past couple of years uh, this trend towards these large oil and gas companies, which are, uh, for the most part, uh, public companies. So they have to provide um, public company disclosures, including they now voluntarily uh, have been providing a lot of ESG disclosures. And if we have uh, rulemaking uh, by the SEC to require climate 
change climate risk-related disclosures, then those uh, large oil and gas companies would be uh, obligated to provide uh, ESG disclosures. So we have large oil and gas companies, which are, again, public companies, selling so-called dirty assets to smaller private companies, uh, which, of course, don't have to then provide uh, any disclosure and any transparency in respect of those assets. And so this is an illustration of how... um, the disparate treatment of public and private companies, uh, public companies being subject to uh, very stringent regulation, and then private companies basically being exempt from uh, these transparency accountability requirements, uh, gives rise to opportunities for regulatory arbitrage, if you will, uh, where companies can uh, shift assets uh, to private companies and basically hide them, or uh, companies can delay or avoid going public and um, uh, not provide the disclosures and uh, kind of opt into this regime of federal economic regulation. And so ultimately, if we want the federal government to be able to regulate effectively, uh, then this regime, which allows companies to go in and out, back and forth between public and private status uh, doesn't make much sense because it undermines that ability. It, uh, uh, the, the regulatory regime cannot capture all of the entities for which it is arguably intended. Professor, a second negative consequence of the breakdown of the public-private divide discussed in your article is what you describe as the fragmentation of investor protection. So what do you mean by the fragmentation of investor protection and what, why is that a negative consequence of the breakdown of the public-private divide? Right. That's a great question. And it actually ties back to one of the biggest innovations in finance and uh, finance theory, really, in the 20th century, which is modern portfolio theory and diversification. So as a result of the regulatory changes that I discussed earlier, a typical investor today can actually invest with the same ease in both public and private companies. Uh, And if that investor buys ETFs or um, units in a mutual fund or uh, invests through Fidelity or BlackRock, increasingly those funds also invest in both public and private companies. And so the portfolio of the typical investor will contain both public and private companies, which as we saw, means both regulated and unregulated companies. And so this idea of fragmentation just means that uh, an investor is exposed to both the regulated and the unregulated uh, companies. And this is something that uh, really goes against the original design of the securities laws, because that's why we had uh, very strict qualification requirements for who can invest in private companies. uh, And uh, retail investors or mainstream investors were really uh, confined to the Uh, well-regulated, liquid public markets. So this is the idea of the fragmentation. And of course, then you may ask, well, what's so bad about uh, mainstream investors, uh, main street investors being able to invest in private companies? Uh, And uh, that's a great question because actually this was uh, something that was touted as a benefit uh, during the J. Clayton years. Uh, And this goes back to the idea that Private markets are never going to be as good as public markets in terms of valuation, price discovery, stock price accuracy. Why? Because we don't have enough information through disclosure about private companies. Uh, Their stock doesn't trade in uh, liquid markets, uh, even though we do have some uh, private uh, company uh, platforms that trade public uh, private company stock, but that is very limited. I want to drive home this point. Valuation and the price at which 
an investor or a fiduciary for an investor uh, buys or invests in the stock of a company. That is the most fundamental aspect of any investment transaction, uh, the price. And so if the price isn't right, uh, then that is a significant problem. If uh, retail investors are overpaying for the shares that they buy in private companies, then that is a significant problem. And we do have evidence, uh, both empirical evidence and then also theoretical evidence uh, that says that, and survey evidence as well, actually, from market professionals that says that uh, price discovery isn't as efficient in the private markets and that shares of private companies are overvalued. So, so that is a, the, the valuation point is a very significant point. And then of course, we also have the governance problems that private companies uh, have been having. Uh, and that's been in the news with WeWork, with Theranos, with Uber. And so private companies just aren't governed as well uh, as uh, public companies for, for whatever reason. And then finally, there, there's a third point um, which doesn't get as much attention, uh, but this is a point about resilience. Uh, perhaps this is a, the, the fact that it doesn't get as much attention as a function of the uh, macroeconomic environment, which has been very favorable over the past uh, 10 years. Uh, but public markets and private markets aren't the same. Private markets are still smaller and they can dry up more easily. They're less liquid uh, versus public markets. And so uh, from a and so from a big picture point of view, we may want to actually emphasize public markets or private markets because they provide greater resilience for economic actors, firms uh, within the economy. Professor, final question. Your article discusses some potential reforms to address the problems caused by the breakdown of the public-private divide. One of the reforms discussed in your article is a project on the Securities Exchange Commission's current rulemaking agenda entitled Revisions to the Definition of Securities Held of Record. Do you support that project? And what other reforms, if any, do you believe are necessary? Thanks, Jeff. This is a great question. Thank you for asking it. And this is something that your listeners will be hearing about a lot more in the coming months, uh, I predict. This is definitely something that is on the SEC's agenda. And why is it on the SEC's agenda? It's on the SEC's agenda because it's really the only or one of the very few instruments that the SEC has to address the breakdown of the public-private divide. So how would this work? Well, uh, currently we have this idea of shares held of record or shareholders of record, uh, which uh, is tied to the thresholds for a public company status. Uh, but uh, there is a mismatch between the number of beneficial owners and the number of shareholders of record. And if the definition of shareholders of record is revised so that it's much closer to the uh, notion of beneficial owners, then a lot more company would uh, exceed the 2,000 shareholders of record threshold for uh, public company regulation. Uh, and then basically... Uh, virtually automatically, as a result of the change in this definition, you end up with uh, you end up creating, if you will, uh, uh, a lot more uh, public companies or companies that uh, would have to take on uh, public company regulation. And so, this is a very blunt instrument. It's an effective instrument, uh, but uh, and I do think that the SEC does have the statutory authority to pursue this rulemaking and to change the definition. 
but, but as I said, I think it's a, it's a fairly blunt instrument and that makes me question how feasible uh, it, it is. Uh, and that's just something that, that we'll have to see. Uh, and unfortunately, as I said, this is one of the very few instruments, if not really the only meaningful instrument uh, that the SEC has in this area in terms of regulating uh, private companies, companies that are not now uh, private. Um, and ultimately, what would be best is if Congress got involved uh, and uh, sought to rationalize the uh, regime for capital raising. I think there's just a, a lot of potential for improving the framework uh, for capital raising. And I think recognizing that we've seen the breakdown of the public-private divide and that this conceptual uh, framework actually uh, no longer makes sense in the way it was intended uh, and in the way it worked for much of the 20th century is a first step in improving the regime for capital raising. And so what I argue for in the article is ultimately that uh, we just have open dialogue uh, and we come up with a blueprint for uh, rationalizing securities regulation. And uh, I'm not the only uh, scholar uh, uh, arguing for this. Uh, many uh, have uh, written about uh, aspects of public and uh, private markets, and many have uh, argued for a more significant overhaul of securities regulations, such as uh, scholars, including Mark Steinberg, uh, Don Langevord, uh, and, uh, and many others. Uh, and I think, what we, I think what we ultimately need is a process where various stakeholders can come together and think about what makes the most uh, sense for the 21st century. Because uh, as I said, we've had a lot of evolutionary changes, technological changes, and we've seen the breakdown of the traditional public-private divide. I'm not sure that we can go back to that regime. I'm not sure that that's feasible or desirable. So we have to come up with a new regime, a new uh, system uh, that ensures investor protection and whatever other capital formation and um, uh, allows the federal government basically to exercise uh, some regulatory control over large business enterprises. Uh, and what that's going to look like, I think, is up for grabs. Uh, but we do need various stakeholders uh, and uh, all the people who've written and thought about this, uh, investors, uh, issuers, uh, their advisors, basically everyone to come together and think about what makes the most sense. And hopefully Congress, and that may be widely optimistic, but hopefully Congress will, will act on it. Uh, and here, actually, let me just make one final point. Uh, obviously, we focused on problems in the private markets and private markets being inferior to public markets and uh, why the breakdown of the public-private divide is problematic. And that's definitely uh, the case. Uh, but we also, uh, we should not forget that we also have uh, a number of problems in the public markets. And the SEC is currently looking at rulemaking in a variety of those areas. Uh, they've been looking at SPACs. Uh, of course, we have the issue of inadequate disclosure, uh, including on uh, ESG topics, uh, problems related to um, uh, market microstructure and various other problems in the public market. So it's not about um, just the private markets. It's not just about solving the uh, this regulatory paradox, but it's also about improving uh, public markets as well. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professor George S. Georgiev of the Emory University School of Law. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, that's J-E-F-F, -F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.